Hi, today I'm your teacher. And that's a good thing because Jesus is my role model, which is an even better thing because we all know that Jesus is a good teacher. Even people that don't follow Jesus consider him a good teacher, like the Muslims and the Jews and the Buddhists and many agnostic and atheistic people will all agree that Jesus is a good teacher. My question today is, who do you say that Jesus is? In addition to being a good teacher, is he more? Is that all he is? That was a great question that uh, the rich young ruler brought to Jesus. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered him, why do you call me good? Among other things. So I'm just going to think today, we're going to talk today about what it takes to be a good teacher. I happen to actually be a trained teacher and lucky to be a teacher for you here today. And through my study and through some resources, I've come up with some attributes of a good teacher. But I want you to think about a good teacher that you had in the past. What made him or her a good teacher to you? Was it his intrinsic knowledge? Was it something about the methodology or process or their humor or their rigor? Or was it their concern for you? Or was it some combination of all those things? My experience, particularly in my younger years, was a teacher was somebody who stood in front of the class and I sat in my seat and we did a call and response mainly. There was not a lot of creativity there, but there was a great teacher that I was inspired by and her name was Ann Sullivan and she was Helen Keller's teacher. She so inspired me that 50 years later, and at least 10 moves, I still have this book that I read in third grade. It says so right here in the front cover, Cheryl, grade three, Miss Vermalion, called Helen Keller's teacher. Ann Sullivan was an unlikely choice to teach blind deaf Helen Keller because she herself was visually impaired and had lived in institutions. She was an unlikely choice to be a heroic rescuer of Helen. She was sent there though to unlock the mystery of words in Helen's mind so that she could begin to think systematically. And she literally gave her life up for Helen, staying with her until her death. And she wasn't just sacrificial, but she was diligent and persistent and creative, and she was always pursuing Helen's best interest. She was giving sight and ears where Helen had none. And that had a great influence on me. It turns out such an influence that many years later I went to college and became a special educator of people who are deaf. So as we begin to think about what a good teacher looks like from my training and so forth, I want you to think of Jesus as someone we also can read about, who also was an unlikely candidate, who also was set to unlock mysteries through the word who also laid down his agenda for his students sacrificially and persistently and creatively, and who also gives new sight to our blind eyes and opens our ears for real listening. So let's look at this little graph of a good teacher. These are the, the attributes we're gonna be talking about today. A good teacher is first, a good learner. Second, focuses on his student. Third, has a plan. Fourth, uses creative methods. And fifth, dun, 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 takes grades. If you've had a teacher that never took grades, you know you didn't learn as much as one who did. So let's go to our first category. A good teacher is a good learner. This is an excellent book. It's called Teaching to Change Lives by Dr. Harville 
Dr. Howard Hendricks. I've read this book so many times. There are so many markings and so many underlines and so many dog-eared corners. I would suggest if you want to be a good teacher in any capacity, whether it's to your children, to a Sunday school class, or if you're a professional teacher or wannabe, this is a great inspirational book. It makes me so excited about teaching every time I read it. And chapter one, describes what he calls the law of the teacher. And he says, if you stop growing today, you stop teaching tomorrow. Neither personality nor methodology can substitute for this principle. You cannot communicate out of a vacuum. You cannot import what you did not possess. To be ready for today, I've spent many times as many hours studying, and it's still not enough, but I love coming hungry and thirsty to the Word of God because God is faithful to teach me. And this is true for Jesus as well. We don't know all we want to know about Jesus in his youth. We've already studied this in the past weeks. We met him at day eight and not again till age 12. But in that first gap of time, we know this from the book of Luke, he grew, became strong, and filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. That's what we know. And then from age 12, when we find him seated in the temple, listening to the scholars and the priests, we know this. He increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Again, from Luke 2, verse 52. That's all we know. We know that during this time, he was growing and learning and increasing in favor with God and men. We know he was a student of the Father before he set out on his ministry and while he was in his ministry. We find him many times in the temple, we find him many times quoting scriptures, and we find him many times in personal prayer. And he said to us in John chapter 8, verse 28 through 30, that he only does what God taught him to do. Here it is. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Good teacher is a good learner, thirsty for knowledge. You know, there's an old saying, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But you can make him thirsty. And that, as a good teacher, is what we want to do. We want to add the salt that Jesus said is good for flavoring, for enticing, and for making a thirst. So we are drawing people to the good living water that is he. Be salty. On to number two. A good teacher makes a plan. You can look at this uh, template of a lesson plan. When I was in college, there was a great emphasis on writing a good lesson plan, and it had these parts in it. It had an area for the subject, usually what was this topic about, what was, the, what was the area, math, science, language. Then there was an area for goals, which is a big overarching agenda, like to prepare for the ACTs or to move on to level two or to become proficient in something. And then there was a specific topic, a what, like fractions or prepositions or molecular integration. And then there were objectives, measurable objectives, which is a description of what the student will be able to do as a result of having sat through this lesson. You might be surprised to know I have written measurable, objecti measurable objectives for you today. And then there are the activities, which is the how, where, and how, when people are going to do what during this lesson. And then finally, an assessment that says how well, or how much, or how many. 
And those behavioral objectives are tied very tightly to the assessment. So we can say, for example, after today's lesson, you, the student, will be able to name three methods of Jesus out of five. There's your assessment, three out of five. There's exactly what you're going to do, and here's how you're going to do it. You're going to name it. I'm going to be able to see it or hear it or write it down or copy it or videotape it. I will know you did it. I can't know what goes on in your mind and in your heart because I can't see in there, but I can know what I see. So a behavioral objectives are measurable and observable. And Jesus was measuring and observing what he, what he was seeing in us. Now, you saw in the lesson plan the subject was who as opposed to what. So in a regular lesson plan that I might write for molecular integration, there might be a what. But I want to tell you, Jesus has one subject in every lesson plan. Are you ready? It's him. It's a who. It's he. It's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's the Trinity. He is the subject of every lesson. And his goal for us every single time is to know him better and for us to follow him better because we know him better. How he does that, with what activities, and what circumstances, and what way, and how he measures us, our proficiency in getting there, they vary. And the Bible's full of many, many examples of him teaching us in many ways, which we're going to talk about. But his subject is always himself. And I'm going to tell you, this has been a revelation for me. Because now when I read things in the Bible about what he's doing, I realize he just wants me to know him. He wants me to know him. He's going to use every, everything in his, in his atmosphere to get me to know him so that I'll live and flourish in his in relationship with him. Jesus, the good teacher, exemplifies a plan. You can find, um, you can find a plan in Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4 through, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, 4 through 9. Okay, here we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Listen, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." And there are people who do these things, literally binding things on their arms and wearing frontlets of prayer between their eyes and on their mind and uh, markings on their doorposts. And that's well and good. But Jesus did not just do this literally binding these. He did them actively and personally. And he's telling us to do the same thing. Teach these as we come and go. Keep them in your mind. Keep them in front of your hands, uh, in front of your eyes. Keep your hands active for the purpose that he has prepared in advance for us to do. Putting these truths um, in our minds and in our hands is what he's about as far as our practice. This is our behavioral objectives. He says, this is how you do it. This is what teaching looks like, and I'm going to show you. So um, for review, if we look at Jesus' teaching, the subject is always a who, and that is him. The goals are the why to fulfill the commands as we just read in Deuteronomy to love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our might. Our activities, the how, when, and where vary. And the assessments, how well and how much and how many are how close are we on our journey to getting nearer to this goal for him. John 10.10 10 says it this way. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's our assessment. Jesus wants for us to have life and to have it abundantly here and in the next life. 
Which leads me to the next attribute we see in Jesus, a good teacher focuses on the student. Now that may seem to be an obvious thing, but you've had teachers who are more focused on their content or their process than they are on you. But a good teacher is about the student, moving the student from point A to point B, knowing who that student is and what they need. Jesus knows what's in all of us, so he knows what to do. In that same book by Howard Hendricks, Teaching That Changes Lives, there's a dedication that caught my eye, and it says, to my students, my most persistent challenge and my most enduring fulfillment. A good teacher focuses on the student. Not just how well the lesson is crafted, but how well it moves the student toward the goal. And Jesus says it this way in John 6. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus sees you, and he longs for you, and he wants to have eternal life with you. Moving on. A good teacher uses creative methods. For the sake of conversation today, we're going to settle in the book of Matthew because Matthew is full of creative methods. So you could open your Bible to the book of Matthew and I'll have some references here. Um, but here's what we're going to look at today as far as creative method methods. Jesus used provocative statements. He uses object lessons. He uses direct instruction. He uses physical demonstration. And he uses parables or stories. Now, as I said earlier, I didn't have many out-of-the-box instructors when I was growing up, mostly just in the classroom or an occasional field trip. But in my own classroom as a special educator with just a few kids whose um, education I got to design on an IEP, I got to be a lot more creative. And it, it might surprise you some of the things we did, but I, I taught a lot with food. It's very motivating for all of us. And for my children who had hearing loss and difficulty learning speech, we created a clown troupe. We sewed our costumes, we learned to measure, we learned fractions, we learned to follow patterns in language, we learned to perform, we took on clown personas and learned the history of clowning. And you might be surprised to know that my name was Salty. My students who are now in their 30s often send me photographs of those years because it made an impression upon them. It was a way of teaching through experience that was probably only relevant in the 80s. <laughs> but there, there's where I was. So we'll see Jesus being uh, using lots of creative methods. And the first one out of the box that I'm going to talk about are these provocative statements. Now these, when I use the word provocative, it should evoke something in you that feels a little negative because that's what it's intended to do. It's meant to cause a reaction or to be sort of shocking, kind of those mic drop moments. So here's one from Matthew 9, 10 through 12. Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who have no need of a physician, but those who are, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners." 
So here's Jesus reclining with his followers, but those that he's speaking to are, the, are, are, are not his followers. They're taking issue with him. And you will see that he uses these kinds of statements mainly with people who are self-righteous or are or in one way or another oppressing him for his um, authority or a, a, a verification upon who he is. So here's Jesus at the table and the, with, with those that are sick that are coming to the hospital himself for the care that they need. And the Pharisees, the ones who should know everything and consider themselves um, high and above, uh, self-righteously say, why are you doing that? And he says, oh, you better go learn what the scriptures say. And again, later in Matthew 16. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him. There it is. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be giving, given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. So here's Jesus again saying these provocative things. Now, if somebody's saying this to you, you might be agitated, you might be irritated, you might stay in it, you might listen longer, you might be provoked in some way to find an answer. And this, you know, Jesus is, is looking that none would be lost, but those, are those that are coming after him with challenging statements, he, he returns with challenging statements. Now we're going to talk about object lessons. We've already talked about this one. Jesus is using objects and subjects in his midst all the time, like this one. Stay thirsty, friends. So you'll see him using most anything in his path as a teachable moment, a metaphor, as that he, when he came and went. Matthew 4, 18 and 19. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting it into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He wouldn't have said that in the marketplace, but it was completely appropriate here. And understanding what a fisherman does and what a fisher of men could be, that made sense to, to that teaching at that moment. Matthew 15. Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus and said, Why do your disciples break through tradition and not wash their hands when they eat? Do you not see that whatever goes? And he says to them, regarding things that are eating, so he takes the moment to, to speak about food. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? There's a provocative statement. But comes out, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that is what defiles a person. Jesus is talking, teaching through food and teaching through the action of eating. And in Matthew 18, the disciples came to Jesus asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's an object lesson. There's a child, there's food, there's eating, there's fishing. Jesus is always teaching with object lessons. I know you as parents have done this before, but I see Jesus doing this so much, I realize, you know, we didn't have video. We didn't have YouTube. He's teaching all the time with things that will sit with us, that will hit us emotionally, that will hit our senses, that will go through several modalities so that we will remember. Everything is fodder for a teachable moment, especially if it allow, allows us to have maybe a rich comparison or contrast to the status quo, because that's what Jesus was shaking up. 
But there was a time when there was direct instruction. So here's a listing of some direct instructions you see here. In Matthew 5, 17 through 20, he begins saying, do not think. Matthew 6, 1, beware of. Matthew 6, 2, when you pray. Matthew 6, 5, when you fast. Matthew 6, 25, don't be anxious. Matthew 7, 1, judge not. Ask and receive. Do unto others. And in all of these cases, he, get, he is giving direct messages to those who are already affiliated with him. He's telling them, now that you've joined my camp, here's how it goes. And sometimes we need the clearest instructions possible. We've already decided that we're going to follow him. Now he's teaching us how to clearly follow him. And there are patterns for behavior that make good sense, that keep us in right relationship with him and others. Remember, Jesus' goal is to lose none that the Father gave him. And so those strong yeses and noes are powerful. Because here's what he says in Matthew 10. Behold, I'm sending you out a sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. See how direct this teaching is? Because it's essential the disciples understand what's about to happen to them. Now we're going to move on to physical demonstrations. What we call miracles. We can pull up that screen and see that there are so many physical demonstrations that, that uh, we get in the book of Matthew. So in 8.1, he cleanses the lepers. In 8.5, he heals a centurion servant. In 8.14, he heals Peter's mother-in-law and then asks her for dinner. 8.23, he calms the storm. 8.28, he heals two men with demons. Matthew 9.1, he heals a paralytic. You see them? They're just stacked up there, healing, healing, healing. Matthew 9.35 says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Why did he do that? His miracles are a means to an end. And the means to the end is the goal of this lesson, which is, do you see? I am in your midst. I am your access to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Look at me. The subject is Jesus. He's not talking about healing our bodies or everybody that ever was. He wants the healing of the bodies to show people that he has a claim over all, over all health, over all wellness, over natural powers, over supernatural powers, and even death itself. And those few verses between Matthew 8 and 9 are full of physical demonstrations of his authority over all these things. His goal is to proclaim the gospel and the kingdom, which brings us to our last ca category of creative methods, the parables. Now, we love the parables because they're stories, and who doesn't love a story? But sometimes they're kind of confusing. According to author Dwight D. Pentecost, and if your name is Dwight D. J. Dwight Pentecost, you really have to be a Christian writer, don't you? The parables of Jesus. He says, a parable is a story that requires thought and interpretation. Okay, it's going to provoke us a little bit. Answers a specific question, is grounded in culture, and concerns the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to say it again. A parable is a story that requires thought and interpretation, answers a specific question, is grounded in culture, and concerns the kingdom of heaven. It's important that we look at those because every parable is not meant for every person in every circumstance in every time and space. And so J. Dwight Pentecost says to us, go research these 
these parables with this in mind. Jesus has something in mind for us. Now, I'm going to begin with the end in mind, the way Stephen Covey says in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the end is, it concerns and clarifies specific aspects of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. What does that mean? All right. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word kingdom is used 154 times. And of those, the kingdom of heaven is used 31 times, primarily in the book of Matthew. That is his preferred phrase. He also uses the word kingdom of God a few times, as do all the other gospel writers, for a total of 84 references to the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. It seems pretty important. Each time, Jesus is teaching, and he is teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to contrast that with just plain numbers of other words in the Gospels, like the word love, okay? Used 58 times. Kingdom of heaven, 84. Oh, money, money, 36 times. There's some other references to gold and treasures and things, but still doesn't compare to the 84 times. Commandment even, the word commandment, 28 times. So the kingdom of heaven is pretty important to Jesus because he says it a lot. And it is anything that pertains to God's realm and reign, including his very self, the very person. So when you hear Jesus saying, repent, the kingdom of God is near, he really means near. I stand at the door and knock. I'm right here. The kingdom of heaven is before you. If you don't know what the kingdom of heaven is like, it's the righteousness of me. It's the sacrifice of me. It's the proximity to God. It's all these things that I embody. Again, the answer to all the questions is Jesus. He who has ears, let him hear. Many times he tells us about the kingdom of heaven in the form of similes. Now, similes are good because they use the word like or can be compared to or as. We can directly say that he's teaching us that the kingdom of heaven is like this. So if you still have quest questions about what is the kingdom of heaven like, here's a whole list of places you can find them. Matthew 5.13, the kingdom of heaven is like salt and light, adds flavor and brightness. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that survives moths and other um, things that degrade. The kingdom of heaven is like the lilies and grass that God provides. It's like the truth that we can see through specks and planks in our eyes. It's like dogs and pearls. It's like trees and fruit, a narrow gate, a house on a rock. I suggest to you, if you want to know more about the kingdom of heaven, look up this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, and you'll find everything you need because Jesus is always explaining it. A few other references, though, take more concentration. They're not quite as obvious. So let's go back to the definition. A parable is a story that requires thought and interpretation. So here's a parable like this one, Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. By the way, the book of Matthew is full of parables. And if you just want to study parables, the Matthew 13 is the place to go. Here's Matthew 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat behind the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, here it comes, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them, and other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has, has ears, let him hear. 
To which the disciples said, Huh? Ah. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak like this in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they don't see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, and they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people belong to Jesus, long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Is that clear? Maybe not. Remember, a story is... A parable is a story that requires thought and interpretation. Jesus is inviting us into the pondering. Second thing it does, it, it, it answers a specific issue in context. So here Jesus is talking about seeds. If you go back to chapter 12, you're seeing that he has walked through the fields. He has just walked through the fields and he has eaten Sabbath, uh, eaten um, grain from the, from the fields on the Sabbath and they are accusing him of breaking Sabbath laws through the seed. And so when he starts teaching about these seeds, there is some weight to that. Go back and find out what are the settings. What question is Jesus actually answering here? And Jesus' question is, which of you is going to truly believe? And so you see the, you see the answer right there. A parable is a story that requires thought and interpretation and answers a specific question, which we just had, and has cultural relevance. So planting and harvesting, very uh, known entity to those that were there. I'm not from an agrarian society myself. I know what a seed does, though, and it contains the life. And no matter what I do to it, it's the seed that has the life. And that's what those people knew. They knew that the seed had the life and everything else was, was an opportunity for that seed to grow. Let's move along. And a parable is a story that requires thought, answers a question, is culturally relevant, and illustrates the kingdom of heaven. And so the ultimate picture here is about the flourishing of the kingdom of heaven, the multiplying effects of God's glorious reign abundantly up to 100-fold. As C.S. Lewis says, if you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. And then the parable of the sower is explained. I'm going to jump on. You can find the answer, check your answer, in Matthew 13, verses 18 through, 25, through 23. Jesus will explain that parable to you again. That's the one and only time he does this. But I want to finish with this. A good teacher gives grades. There's a principle at play here. What you count demonstrates what you value. And Jesus counted his sheep. Matthew 25, verse 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He counts 
his sheep. Let's wrap this up. Jesus is a good teacher indeed. Is that all? No. He's a student of God, focused on us getting it, a persevering and creative planner, but ultimately he is more. He is the subject and the object of the lesson itself. And the final question for us is, who do you say that he is? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much to know about you, and I thank you that you've given us your word and ways to understand it. We are on a journey, and you are patient and kind and persevering and creative, and you long for us to know you better. And we thank you for the opportunity to do that in group with one another in this place where it's safe and loving for us to experience you together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.